0: Hi What The Health Tech listeners, I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and best practices across health and social care. This week, I'm speaking to Sarah Graham. Sarah is an award-winning freelance health journalist and author of Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Gap Revolution, and is also founder of the Hysterical Women blog, specialising in health, gender and feminism. She's written extensively on these subjects for The i Newspaper, Refinery29, The Telegraph, Grazia. The Guardian, the British Medical Journal and many others. She was also a finalist in the 2021 Medical Journalist Association Awards. Sarah that's quite a bio, welcome to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: So I'm really excited to see you here today. Um, So I first saw you when I came along to a session you held um, as part of the York Festival Ideas this summer Um, And I was absolutely blown away by some of the topics and statistics that you talked about, which are part of um, your book, which I've got here, um, Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Health Gap Revolution. There's so much to talk about in this book. I mean, it covers everything from politics and healthcare to gaslighting, um, misdiagnosis, and the research that shows there are still such big differences when it comes to men and women's health. So how did you first get into writing on topics covering health, gender and feminism?
1: so yeah it's a really good question i mean when i first started out as a journalist i was writing quite broadly on sort of women's issues you know i'd got very interested in feminism as a student um but i guess i found that the ones that i was kind of most drawn to the the more i went along were around health particularly interested in mental health um sexual and reproductive health and you know debates around kind of reproductive rights the battle for abortion rights particularly in the us but but equally in in the uk and so when i went freelance then that was kind of the obvious um area for me to focus on um, and yeah the, the more i wrote about it the more i kind of found that i was pulling at threads and and just going further and further down <laughs> down this path, looking into the gender health gap and getting more and more frustrated and, and annoyed about the things that I was finding. <laughs>
0: I think that's it isn't it there's so many I mean obviously haven't read it as well there are so many little things that kind of come out of it and things that you wouldn't normally think about and I think the point you have just made about you know unraveling the thread almost from from everything you kind of kind of touch upon I can imagine there is such a rabbit hole of, of every little thing that is so easy to fall down.
1: Oh yeah totally and uh, you know there are things that that i could have included in the book that i didn't have but spe- you know I, I i'm sure you know i've crammed a lot into the book it covers loads and loads of different subjects but there were so many more that could also have been in there and you know even things that i've written about since writing the book and i've thought oh i wish i'd thought to include that i wish i'd thought to include this and you know it it just seeps into so much of the healthcare that that women experience
0: yeah, definitely. So I mean, that brings me really nicely on to sort of what prompted the book to be written? Um, and what do you hope people can gain from it? And what can we all do to help bridge that um, gender gap that that is there in healthcare?
1: Yeah, so the book obviously came out of my blog, Hysterical Women, um, which in turn, I suppose, had come out of the work that I was doing as a freelance journalist. So I was frustrated that i was hearing lots of very similar stories from women i was interviewing you know whether we were talking about endometriosis the menopause chronic illnesses all sorts of different topics people were saying i feel like i was dismissed by my doctor i feel like i wasn't taken seriously i wasn't believed um and the really striking thing about that was that i was having so many of these conversations but virtually every single one of these women said I feel like it's just me I feel like I'm weak like everyone else is coping with this and there's just something wrong with me and I feel so isolated and alone and so that prompted me to start the blog basically to say to them you're not alone like there are all of these other women experiencing these things this is a systemic issue there's a lot more going on here um and it was during the pandemic that I kind of finally decided to to pull it all together into a book really I'd always had the idea of a book in the back of my mind but the pandemic was such a such a kind of pivotal time in terms of the way that we were all thinking about health and healthcare, and particularly health inequalities you know looking at the people that were affected by COVID the most Um, and so what I wanted to do with the book was to take lots of the stories from the blog but put them all into context you know explore why is this happening but also to really celebrate some of the activism some of the patient advocacy that i had discovered through the through the process of pulling this blog together for the previous two years so it was about wanting to to kind of pull all of those threads together and and present it in a way that i hope you know lays out what some of the problems are but i hopefully also presents uh, a bit of optimism as well you know so that people don't come away from it feeling like completely and utter despair (laughs) um, which is easy to do um, you know with these subjects but I think you know we have seen such progress in the last few years as well but I didn't want to I didn't want the book not to include all of all of those positive sides as well
0: I think, from my point of view, it definitely comes across like that. I think it's really interesting what you, you touched on about obviously health inequalities because they actually come across in every single subject that I think is is almost in there um, with people suffering in, in different ways. Um, but I think that there is an element of the, of that optimism. I think it's that sort of like you touched on the um, you know women kind of just think it's just them or suffering in silence a little bit. And I think when you see so many things out there that actually this has happened to hundreds you know thousands millions of of other women then it sort of does make you go all oh, right okay that isn't just me that feels feels like that or felt like that so i think i think absolutely. there probably is that optimism bit there that's definitely a good thing to take away from it
1: yeah no absolutely and you know i was having this conversation with somebody yesterday a lot of the time You know, I've been having these conversations for a few years now and a lot of the time it feels like, you know, we're so socialized as women to not make a fuss, just be a good girl and get on with it and don't complain. And, you know, it feels like once one person is kind of brave enough to, you know, stick their head above the parapet and go, actually, this happened to me and it really wasn't okay, and I'm not going to stand for it the outpouring and this kind of avalanche of women opening up about their own experiences. And it's almost like they've been given permission to go, oh, God, yeah. And it's such a relief. And, you know, people are constantly coming up to me at events even and saying, this happened to me. Let me tell you about my experience. And, you know, I think that kind of catharsis is something that I really hope people can take away from the book as well.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean that you know, even when it comes down to things like miscarriage, IVF, again, it's the same sort of situation. I think that you see as well, and I'm sure you know there's so many women that have come across this in groups of friends and things. Where once somebody has said that they've gone through that, mm. there other there might be you know three or four other people that have gone. Actually, that happened to me a few years ago, and mm. you know I just didn't feel comfortable about saying it or it, whatever it might be. So I think that is still something that you know there's an element of actually speaking up um which Mm. is a really positive thing for others as well yeah
1: absolutely and I think you know there are lots of problems with social media and particularly in the kind of health and wellness space but I think that is one of the real positives is that that kind of community and the way that Platforms like Instagram and TikTok allow people to feel able to speak out about these experiences and build communities of like minded people who are going through the same things when, you know, perhaps the people in their own everyday lives don't, don't necessarily understand what they're going through
0: yeah definitely. I mean, we've we've got to talk about some of the the stats that are in the book. there's there are obviously quite a lot in there, but some of the ones that really stood out to me were that fourteen million working days a year are being lost to the menopause. Endometriosis costs the u k economy eight point two billion a year, and more than fifty percent of young women experience period pain bad enough to need medication. Yet a 2020 study into gender disparities in health research funding highlighted that endometriosis and other female dominant conditions are among some of the worst funded by the US National Institutes of Health, while health issues that predominantly affect men are overfunded. What's your thoughts on on why this is and do you see this changing as we continue or do you think there's still a risk of this being the case in the next 10, 20, 50 years even?
1: I think it's really complex. And I feel like there's, you know, there's there's such a lot of catching up to do is, you know, I talk in the book about the fact that there are so many research gaps, it's kind of impossible to know where to start really, in terms of closing them. But I think, you know, we have a healthcare system, essentially, that throughout history has been built by men for men. And so the focus has been on the issues that affected men. You know, historically, doctors, researchers, scientists have been mostly men. And so, you know, conditions that mostly affect women have been neglected, have been ignored. I think there's also a bit of an element. um, And again, I talk about this a lot in the book in in lots of different areas where women's issues have been normalized. So there's this idea that periods are supposed to be painful. That's just what it's like. You, You know, you just have to get used to that as a woman. And. And, and that is a, is a really big thing. And it's something that we all internalize as well. You know, Like I was saying with, with that socialization, we kind of go, oh, well, my mum put up with it. And you know, my grandmother put up with it. And so I just have to put up with it. So I think that, that is a really big thing. And the other thing that um, has been spoken about more, I think, in, in the last few years is this idea that a lot of these issues that we're talking about, endometriosis is a, is a really good example is considered a benign condition right it's not cancerous it's not life-threatening um but uh, and so as a result it's it's not seen as a priority it's not like oh well, we're not going to save loads of people's lives by investing in research it's not like cancerous you know it's not one of those big things that that people um you know everyone is is touched by someone who's been affected by cancer um and but but actually, the reality is as you've said is that these conditions are debilitating they have a massive impact on people's quality of life and even you know <laughs> even if uh, as a government or or as funders you you're not interested in people's quality of life, the economic impact is huge um you know in terms of fifty percent of the workforce are, are going through these types of issues so yeah, in terms Yeah, in terms of like, the future, I I mean, I think things are changing really slowly. um, And I think to some extent, that is inevitable, just because of the size of the gap and and the amount of catching up there is to do. Um, I do think we're seeing some progress. And certainly, it seems to be a little bit more on the agenda. But there's still not enough funding going into women's health. You know, one of the um, professors that I interviewed about PCOS said, that he has colleagues who when they're applying for research funding to look into PCOS they have to kind of wrap it up as like metabolic disorders rather than PCOS you know because it's just seen as one of these like not very important women's things of women's and women and their ovaries um so I think there's still a huge amount of work to to be done there and I think really investment and getting to the people who make those funding decisions who the people who decide what's important basically those are those are the ones that we need to to get to and and to influence um because they are setting the agenda for what gets researched and what doesn't
0: yeah definitely i mean one of the the things that kind of really stood out to me was you know when we talk about bridging the gender gap i think People instantly think about women's health conditions, in particular, such as those those that are, you know, menstrual related. Um, but one of the things that really stood out was some of the statistics, the statistics around heart disease. Um, so the heart attack gender gap, which was published in 2019 as part of a wider research piece by the British Heart Foundation estimated that more than 8,000 women in England and Wales died needlessly from heart attacks over a 10-year period. And that was purely because they'd not received the right care. They'd received worse care than than men had. Um, And it also showed that women are 50% more likely than men to receive an incorrect diagnosis whilst having a heart attack. Whilst, in fact, coronary heart disease is the leading cause of death for women globally, killing twice as many women in the UK than breast cancer. I mean that that to me just massively stood out because it wasn't something I was aware of, and I'm sure there's so many people that are not aware of of how important these these conditions are. Um, what do you think we need to do to bridge the gap when it comes to health conditions like these and ensure that treatment is equal no matter what gender you are or where you're being treated?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one, and actually for me, I guess that kind of as as you say, we we do mostly talk about these kind of gynae or obstetric issues when we're talking about women's health. But actually, for me, in many ways, the most interesting ones are the ones that you think of as being kind of gender neutral, the ones that affect body parts that we all have, because that, that I think, really shows up where the biases and inequalities are. You know, it's one thing to just not care about one particular section of medicine. But if you've got a section of medicine that deals with patients from all walks of life, and some of them are being treated differently from others. That really kind of shows the the extent of, of how big the problem is. And again, I think it's really complex. It's a really tricky one to kind of unravel because there are so many different factors there in terms of, you know, the fact that research has mostly been done on men and treatments have been tested on men. And um, But then, you know, also you have all of those cultural things. Like, you know, it's, it's not even just the fact that doctors mostly associate heart attacks with men but actually we as women as patients don't necessarily think of ourselves as being the type of person that has a heart attack so you know one of the things you see is that is that women themselves present later in a and e when they're having a heart attack because you know they they almost kind of dismiss their own symptoms and you then have that double whammy that once they get there they're kept waiting longer, they're more likely to be misdiagnosed. And so that just drags on that process even even longer. I think there's there's a really big kind of cultural and scientific change that, that needs to happen there, you know, not just in, in cardiovascular health, but in all sorts of things. Um where, you know, we need the research to catch up, we need doctors to have a really good understanding of the differences, but actually also the similarities in terms of how these things present Um, and just to be much more aware much more mindful of the way that they are treating people the way that they're making decisions the kind of stereotypes I suppose that they're relying on if somebody presents with certain symptoms and they're a middle-aged man are you more likely to go oh yes obviously a heart attack whereas if they're perhaps a slightly younger woman your mind automatically goes oh yes anxiety she's having a panic attack so so those kinds of mental shortcuts that you know and doctors are under a lot of pressure a lot of time constraints they're having to make really quick snap judgments but they need to be able to address how their biases are influencing those judgments as well
0: I think it's a really important point you mentioned as well about um, actually people understanding their symptoms a little bit more because I was um I was chatting to some friends about about this these statistics around heart heart attacks in particular and you know they they instantly were like oh is that is that a thing like how many women actually do have a heart attack and things like that so I think you're right I think there's probably a lot less um almost a lot less of, of people understanding what that means for them as well
1: yeah absolutely and I've been I think you see it a similar kind of thing in um gynae cancers for example so we all know about breast cancer i feel like you know breast cancer has had this amazing kind of like branding campaign and awareness and we all know to check our boobs at the start of the month and we're all very comfortable talking about breast cancer because because it's it's a kind of palatable discussion you know whereas talking about vulvas and vaginas and even wombs and ovaries makes people a bit more uncomfortable and it's it feels a bit more inappropriate and dirty and you don't want to talk about it in front of your children so you know i think being aware of the fact that you know breast cancer is not the only thing that kills women it's not the only cancer that affects women although it is the biggest um is such an important thing and actually being able to talk about what's going on with our gynecological health, what's going on with you know, the whole of our bodies, um, not just kind of focusing in on particular parts that that we're all kind of okay with talking about.
0: <laughs> it's really interesting that actually, um and I'm gonna touch on social media in a second, but I um I was at um a, a women's conference of a few months ago um and there was a, a social media influencer there who basically is all about educating putting videos out there um to educate young women and and young girls about their bodies and about what's okay to say and what you should talk about and things like that um and i thought it was really interesting because like we just mentioned you know people are more comfortable talking about one thing than others um and it was really interesting to see that she's actually putting herself out there um to basically say this is what this is what you should do um and I'm gonna gonna touch a bit on social media now so yeah it's I think there's a lot more awareness out there which is obviously a a good thing for for people to be more open about talking about you know everything not just you know breast cancer or, or anything like that um but I mean going back to social media there's obviously a lot of informative content out there, which is absolutely fantastic. You know, people have got a lot of access to research to, you know, people like that that I've just mentioned that, are you know, putting their knowledge forward to to kind of encourage people to speak about things. Um, But how can we make sure that the advice that we're reading is credible um, and helpful rather than just maybe another expert who might not have the relevant credentials to be talking about certain topics?
1: It's a, it's a really tricky one to navigate, I think. you know there is so much information out there on social media, and actually filtering through all of that requires a, a degree of health literacy that we don't all have. Um, I think the kind of the really key thing for me is always looking at who is this person, what are their credentials. You know there are some fantastic medical doctors now on social media on platforms like Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter people like Dr. Nigat Arif, Dr. Aziza Sese, all all sorts of amazing people who are sharing genuinely evidence-based, informative, useful content. I think if somebody is, you know, perhaps not a medical expert, but has some lived experience as a patient, then you know they may have valuable things to share still and i'm not i'm not saying by any means that doctors are the only experts we should be listening to because as i say in my book you know very often patients become the kind of experts in in their field because their doctors don't have don't have the relevant training and education but you know thinking about the credibility of what they're saying Are there scientific studies to back it up? Are there other people saying the same thing? What's the price tag on what they're promoting? You know, you shouldn't have to be spending hundreds or thousands of pounds on kind of miracle cures. Um, and, And that's where I think it can get really tricky because, you know, often if people are really desperate for symptom relief and they feel like they're not getting that support from their doctors, it can be very easy to be kind of drawn in by glossy branding on social media and influencers saying, try this, try that. Um, So, you know, looking at who is this person? What are their motives? What are they getting out of this? What experience and expertise do they have in order, you know, to say that? and, And is there any kind of evidence, whether that is scientific research and papers and studies that back it up? Or actually, is there, you know, a very long standing and anecdotal evidence base, saying that, you know, people have used this for generations, and it does seem to have an impact. Um, so yeah, I, w- I don't necessarily kind of it- wipe things out just on the basis of, of there not being scientific evidence, because we know there isn't enough scientific research <laughs> in this area. But um, yeah, it, it it can be really easy, I think, to to be taken advantage of
0: yeah i think there's some really good points there of of things to look out for um, to make sure that the the information that you may be using is is credible as well which is great um what do you what are your thoughts when it comes to data so obviously you know that we've got so much access to data now you know so much more than our you know parents grandparents had anything like that you know we've got smartwatches, we've got fitness devices um I think everybody I know has got something that that holds data about themselves um so do you think that can help us to have more say over our own health care and and what can we be doing with that
1: yeah I think it can be really useful I think data again is a real kind of double-edged sword where you need to be aware of who you're giving your data to and how they're using it and you know what they're doing with that data but i think you know i'm a huge advocate of things like symptom tracking tracking your menstrual cycle being aware of what's going on within your body at, at any kind of given time in the month um, you know and that's not just necessarily premenstrual symptoms but understanding what's happening throughout the rest of your cycle um, can be really useful um Yeah, but but equally, you know, there are concerns about data privacy and anonymity and and how that data is being used, where I think you have to be a bit careful, again, looking at what the companies that you're, you know, the apps that you're using the wearables that you're investing in, what are they doing with the data? How do they guarantee your privacy, your security that your data isn't being sold to advertisers or, or whatever? Um, because I think actually in in a wider sense, if this data is used well, it can again have really positive benefits. You know, there are period tracking apps who are using their users data for women's health research, you know, to fill some of these research gaps that we're talking about. And, you know, I'm more than happy to hand my data over to those kinds of companies where I know that it's gonna be used for something positive for something that is beneficial uh, in in terms of, of kind of wider women's health if it's just somebody that's gonna you know sell my data to advertisers so that i start getting ben and jerry's targeted ads every month
0: then i'm not okay with that you know we've chatted about your we've mentioned the blog hysterical women um a couple of times which is all about women's health concerns that are not being taken seriously um, and I think the fact that you've created a space which is inclusive for stories to be heard is fantastic. Um, and how important so how important is that in terms of you know that that exists, and women don't feel like they are suffering in silence?
1: I think it's huge, you know, I think that has been the real kind of power of it. Um, I think it's it's so easy you know even though we're in this like super connected world where everyone's on social media all of the time it's so easy to feel like you are on your own and to feel like there's there's nothing that you can do there's nothing you can say to challenge your doctor's opinion that you don't have any power and that was what i really hope the book does more than anything is is to i kind of hate the word empower <laughs> because i feel like it's <laughs> overused but but i do want to empower women to go this isn't just me. And it's not my fault that I'm treated this way. It's not anything I've done wrong. I'm not just being weak. You know, one of the women that I remember interviewing, um, who'd had a hysteroscopy a few years ago, and um, experienced absolutely agonizing pain. And she said she went away and she blamed herself. She felt like she was just weak and everyone else coped with it fine. Because her doctors had said, Oh, you just need to take an ibuprofen beforehand and you'll be fine. And I think that feeling is so, so damaging. And it affects our ability to advocate for ourselves. And it affects the way that we feel about ourselves, you know. And so I think, yeah, for me, that that was the most important thing, really, was for people to come away, feeling like, whatever happens, it's not my fault, I didn't do anything wrong. And you know it's not necessarily my doctor's fault either because these are big systemic issues Uh, you know in in some cases i think doctors are personally at fault but i think actually in a lot of cases they are just as much constrained by the system um and and struggling and, and trying to do their best but yeah i i really for me, that it's it's still the most important part of my work. I think is is sharing people's stories so that other people who are going through the same thing can perhaps find answers or find some sort of um, some sort of resolution.
0: I think as well. Just going back to your point about you know just so people don't feel like they're on their own as well um, is is such a huge thing. I mean, you you start the book talking about you know years ago and and women kind of the hysteria side of it almost of, of what they used to kind of get get almost tarnished with um because they might have been going through the menopause or or another you know something else and I think actually having that sort of that channel or that outlet or somewhere that you know if it means that somebody can read something and go actually that it's normal it's it's not yeah. something that's yeah. that's odd is massive yeah
1: totally i think i think that's so important you know it's it's human nature isn't it to to want to feel like we're part of something bigger um so yeah knowing that other people are going through the same things that what you're experiencing is not a reflection on you as a person um but also that there are solutions and and even if there aren't solutions you know that there are other people who've kind of got your back and who are fighting to make things better for you and 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 they're just kind of in solidarity you know whether that's to hold your hand and give you a hug and go yes it's really crap it's really awful but I and I feel for you um is is such a powerful thing as well even if you don't necessarily have all of the answers or or a kind of definitive way out
0: yeah I mean it's um one thing I do, I do think is really important to mention is, um, you know, you are pro NHS and the book, the blog, etc. You know, they're not written to hit out overworked, under-resourced healthcare professionals. You know, we've we've just touched on on that in the last question, um, but it is there to highlight that there's a much higher level of, of medical sexism that holds women's healthcare back. Um, what do you think we can do to or all do to to help make this better for you know for women of the future?
1: I think continuing to speak out is the most important thing we can do. You know, We have seen how big an impact that's already had, particularly I think around menstrual health and the menopause. When I first started writing about these issues five, 10 years ago, Nobody was talking about these things. It was still such a taboo. You know, my mum never spoke to me about the menopause until I started writing about the menopause. And then, (laughs) you know, suddenly suddenly we were having these conversations that we'd never had before, you know. Um, So I think that that is huge. And it has had, we know it's already had an impact politically. We had the first ever women's health strategy published by the government last summer. That would not have happened without the power of patient advocacy and patient voices and people speaking up and saying we want this to be better so I think in terms of kind of keeping the momentum up that's that's the most important thing we can all do keep talking about these things keep educating our daughters our sons you know our partners even even our older relatives our friends you know people who perhaps aren't engaging in these conversations on social media in quite the same way just having these conversations and and educating people and making it normal to talk about these things is is huge i think the other thing that we can all do is to support the nhs to to continue demanding better from the government for the nhs so whether that is supporting strikers um you know decisions about who we vote for perhaps and you know looking at what we ask for from our political leaders um in in terms of protecting the healthcare system that we all have and, and know and love because we are so lucky to have it in the UK um and it would be it would be devastating to lose it
0: yeah I think that's a a really important point that I think it is it is something we're extremely lucky to have that a lot of other countries don't have access to healthcare in the way way we do so it's a it's a really good point to kind of support that as much as possible to be able to make sure that you know people keep getting that the healthcare gets better and better basically yeah absolutely so what about you what's next for you have you got anything in the pipeline that you're working on or anything you kind of want to do in the future um so the paperback is out in january um, which uh,
1: is very exciting. I'm sure there'll be a few more events and interviews and things around that. Um, I've got ideas kind of like tinkering away in the back of my brain for book two. Um, but for the time being, I'm, I'm just, I'm still, to be honest, <laughs> kind of trying to catch my breath a little bit from the <laughs> from the promo tour from, from this one. Um, so yeah, back to freelancing, back to being a mum to a very chaotic toddler and just trying <laughs> to balance everything out um but yeah definitely definitely more in the pipeline so so watch this space
0: well i mean i highly recommend it to anybody that hasn't hasn't read it um we will put a, a link on it as well to to obviously in the um and also like some of the research stuff as well in the in the show notes okay, thank you. um but at the end of every episode, we ask everybody, so we ask all of our guests um, to describe their What the Health Tech moment. Um, so this is, you know, any weird, wonderful, emotional, any kind of stories that you've experienced within the health and social care industry. So, Sarah, what's your What the Health Tech moment that you'd like to share with us?
1: So I I often say that I've been writing about these issues for so long that nothing really shocks me anymore. Now I've heard so many weird and horrifying and um, frankly quite awful things uh, that doctors have said to patients. But the one that really like had me picking my jaw up off the floor was, um, was a female doctor sent me a message saying that she'd been working in surgery with a male surgeon And he said that he hated um, doing the endometriosis diagnostic surgeries because he said these women were all effing mental. And, And that just absolutely blew my mind in terms of, you know, how far we have to go. You know, this is the guy whose literal job is to cut women open to diagnose them with a condition that affects one in 10 people assigned female at birth. And before he, you know, before they had even gone under anaesthetic, he'd written them off as 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 mental, you know, that it was all in their heads. So that I think for me really kind of sums up so much of of what the book is all about and and the the journey that we're on here um, and why it's so important to keep talking out about all of these issues.
0: And, and I think even that as well absolutely backs up exactly what what you've mentioned, what the book is about and actually, you know get into that that higher level and and making you know people realize that these are actually issues and and not something that is in in someone's head so I think that absolutely sums up everything that that we've kind of discussed about speaking up and and things like that as well today so thank you very much for sharing that with us thank you Um, Thank you so much for joining us this week, Sarah. Um, It's been brilliant to chat to you about the book. um, And and as I mentioned earlier, you know, I um, will put a link on it to to it in the show notes. Um, Thank you to everybody for listening. Um, Join us in a couple of weeks for another brand new episode. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you have any questions for us or any of our guests, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com.